Okay, it's a busy week. We had opening night. We had our first in our lunch series yesterday, evening series today, tomorrow lunch series, um, which is very timely. Our lunch series will be here. Israel's Neighbors, Nationalism and Religion in a Complex Region. And our subtopic tomorrow is Fundamentalism of the Shia, Iran and its regional allies. So um, I understand the Trump administration is sending people here <laughs> to try to understand a little better who they're dealing with. Now the rest of you can participate as well. Uh, and then Friday night at um, Shir Hamalo, Israel in the toughest neighborhood in the world. Shabbat morning, a double booking. Israel, a startup nation at Temple Beth Shalom in the morning, 10.30 a.m. And then um, the Israel Defense Force and its impact on society at 12.30 p.m. Finally on Sunday, Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu at Temple Beth David. So a lot of Israel this month, hopefully in a way that you have never heard before. Or if you've heard topics before, maybe a different perspective. After this month, you will be ready for your next adventures in Israel, whether you're coming with CSP in October or going on your own adventures. If you are not a patron of CSP or are not a legacy member and would like to learn more about that, please see me after the program or any time. Patrons and legacy members get great benefits, including our um, 14th annual adult retreat that's coming up uh, in February. It's open to patrons, free of charge. And um, we're having a dinner for patrons and legacy members with Professor Lips on January 18th. So with that, please welcome me, welcome me, join me in welcoming, it's late, and my kids kept me up till, uh, let's see, I was up till midnight, and they woke up at 5 a.m., so that's about five hours of sleep. Okay, so join me in welcoming Professor Lips to Orange County for the beginning of his evening series on creating, not creation, on politics and politicians. That means you clap, and he comes up here and talks. Ready? One, two, three. Yay. Where are you running? <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. If you, thank you, if you have the booklet with you, and I just ask if you don't mind, I know it's a bit of a schlep bringing it and things, but um, I'll try at the beginning of every lecture just relate a little bit to the sources and a little bit to what's in your booklet. I won't obviously go through all the details of your booklet. Uh, and I just want to say that my, my interest in what I'm doing is to really make this part of an ongoing relationship. So I want to give you my email now. It's a fairly easy email. And I, I, I mean it in all seriousness. You know, you go back tonight and you really didn't understand what I was saying for the last uh, 45 minutes and you've got a question, email me. Uh, and in three months' time, you've got a new realm of interest connected to Israel and the Middle East, email me. So. If you have got a pen or otherwise easy to remember, P, Paul, Lips, L-I-P-T-Z. So you just look at one of the booklets or wherever my name appears. P, Lips, uh, at gmail.com. P, Lips, at gmail.com. You're welcome to write. And I mentioned to uh, those of you who are here yesterday that until today I get um, emails from people who sometimes as much as 10 years, by the way. I got an email the other day from someone who had been in a class 10 years earlier. Uh, she suddenly got interested in the topic. She said no one could give her uh, a bibliography, and I, I knew the topic, so I helped her. So please do see this as a part of an ongoing relationship. Now, in, for those of you who have got the text with you, just look for a moment uh, at the second side, uh, which is the bibliography. And the reason I'm starting off with the bibliography, because I always learn from my audiences. People came up to me at the end and asked me about a book that I'd mentioned. So that means that, you know, I'm delighted to hear it. So I'm telling you a little bit about the bibliography, just in case you have an interest, you want to carry on reading about the topic. And just to hear, when I see book lists uh, without a comment on it, I never know what to do with it. So my bibliography has about a few words which just describe very generally what the book's about. So if we just go through very quickly. Uh, Avraham Avichai, uh, Ben-Gurion State Builder, Principles and Pragmatism, 1948 to 1963. Quite honestly, if you like the old style, slightly schmaltzy Zionism, it's a good book. He's a nice guy, Avichai. 
And it's, it, it's a very warm book. And, and I say it in all seriousness. You know, sometimes academia is so, cynic, so cynical and critical that it's sometimes hard to deal with the material. Avichai is a good book. It, it, it gives Ben-Gurion in a, in, a, in a lovely picture, somewhat old style, but that's fine. Then there's Michael Bar-Zohar. Uh, he's very, very much into Israeli politics, a well-known person for political scientists. Uh, Ben-Gurion, a biography. Um, if you kind of like the pol pol political side of leaders, uh, that's a good book. Then there is something which it's quite hard to get hold of, and it's an unusual book, David Ben-Gurion, Israel, A Personal History. It's one of the most remarkable books I've ever read because David Ben-Gurion wrote the book in real time. So it's basically his diary. And I've always asked myself, what does a leader do in a day? And I've never really understood it. And when you read that, you begin to see how much David Ben-Gurion was a multitasker. Because during the War of Independence, uh, November 1947 to January 1949, he writes what's happening every day. And by the way, he was an amazing person in terms of writing. Uh, the famous Amos Oz, the late Amos Oz, the, f the famous writer, he as a young writer went in to speak to Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion wanted to speak to him, and uh, he, Amos Oz writes about it. I met Amos Oz, he's a terrific guy, and, uh, and Amos Oz writes in, his, in the book that um, he, uh, he saw Ben-Gurion writing. So every time he saw Ben-Gurion writing, he stopped, he thought Ben-Gurion. So Ben-Gurion says, carry on talking. And it was found out that Ben-Gurion could listen to someone, get the whole story, and write at the very same time. And it was found out that actually during even serious uh, military discussions, he was writing some other stuff, both at the same time. So if you ask how could he actually come out with nine books that he wrote in such a busy life, was basically he could do two things at the same time. So if he'd been here, he would be writing his autobiography and listening to me at the same time. But he isn't here. Um, amazing book. The book that I love most, okay, we all have our biases, is Anita Shapiro, Ben-Gurion, Father of Modern Israel, 2014. It's accessible. Uh, now, I like Anita Shapiro because she's somewhat like me. She's, she's a social historian. I'm a social historian also. And Anita writes, to speak, to, writes about people as if they're real human beings, not as if they're uh, a, a list of archival material. So she writes very, very, her books are lovely, uh, a professor at the uh, at Tel Aviv University, where I was, um, and so for me that's kind of one of those very comfortable, it's, it's analytical, but it's a very comfortable human approach to, to uh, uh, biography. Tom Segev, Tom Segev belongs to what are called the New Historians. New Historians are a group of about 12 very serious Israeli academics who uh, refused to look at Zionism through the old eyes. So Zionism was, was a kind of a cynical thing. Uh, it wasn't all about loving human beings, but they come out quite hard, but very important. So I read the, the historic, the, that school of thought. I don't agree with them, I must be honest. Don't agree with the approach that they have, but it's very, very important to understand that history changes with time, and they're the new historians. It's the new voice. So it's important. Shabtai Tevet, an excellent book up to 1948. Uh, it shows how important Ben-Gurion was even before the creation of the State of Israel. And then where possible, and you'll see in all my biographies, uh, bibliographies, I'm sorry, uh, you'll see if I can find a good YouTube. Because uh, I found my students, Israeli and American students, um, reading was considered an unnecessary concept. <laughs> Uh, uh, only for the others, not for them. So I worked out and I had courses at Tel Aviv University which were basically movie-based. They loved it because then they didn't have to read anything. So um, there are two little ones that I found. There's a lot of uh, YouTube on Ben-Gurion, there's an amazing amount of stuff. But there are two of them that I chose. One is a 22-minute lovely little section, just gives a nice one-on-one kind of approach to Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion, one place, one people. And then there's a very, a very sweet little one, eight minutes. Uh, celebrating David Ben-Gurion, a 20th century statement, very uncritical, but good stuff. Okay, now just, and I'm not going to just go through it, obviously, uh, I've got three little sources here. One is by Anita Shapira, she's, and you'll see, I think after reading the summary, I, I cut and pasted 
in half a page, 300 pages. So it's a bit simplistic. Um, so there's a bit of Anita Shapira there, some four points that she made, which I think are very important. There's Nir Kadar, who wrote about something I'm not going to deal with because I won't have time, Ben-Gurion's relationship to Judaism. Very important, and for non-Orthodox Jews, Kadar's uh, approach is very important for them because it explains why Israel really came under the auspices of the Orthodox uh, chief rabbinate. And then on the other side, there's something about the role of um, what's called secular pilgrimage. Some people go on pilgrimage to the Western Wall. Some secular Israelis go on pilgrimage to Sdeboker, where Ben-Gurion was buried. Okay, so, so that's that. Let's start off with our good friend David Ben-Gurion. So I met him on one occasion, not personally. Uh, in 1968, um, David Ben-Gurion, whose dream, he had many dreams. One dream was that he was totally convinced in 1948 that the Western, educated, sophisticated Jewish world would make Aliyah. And that's what he really wanted in Israel. He wanted Israel to be a modern country. And he looked around at the complex Jewish world and he knew Eastern Europe well enough because he's from there, but he realized that to really move Israel forward in such a complex area, that's why Shira Ma'alot, I'm giving the lecture, Israel in the toughest neighborhood in the world. It is the toughest neighborhood. What you really need are well-educated Western people. And in 1948, when he started negotiating with the American Jewish leadership, particularly Mr. Blaustein, Mr. Blaustein said, look, Israel's a great place for refugees, not for us American Jews. So American Jews didn't arrive. However, in 1967, as a result of the Six-Day War, a lot of young people in particular came from the Western world, myself included. I arrived there one day before the Six-Day War, and Ben-Gurion was delighted. So although he was an old man, he came all the way schlepping from Stabokir up to Jerusalem, and he gave a lecture to the students of the Hebrew University, uh, and I will never forget it. By the way, it wasn't a good lecture. It wasn't a good lecture. And he was a little bit incoherent. But I must admit, as a young, good, old-fashioned Zionist, that was the great moment. Some people like David, but they like the biblical David. I like the modern David. So uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And as I'll tell you at the end, what a tremendous impact he had on me personally. We'll come back to that. Okay, let's work out our, our, our friend, uh, David. Um, he, he was very lucky. His father was fluent in Hebrew. And you know, um, in the early stage of the development of Israel, um, being able to speak Hebrew with a Hebrew accent immediately put you into the core group. And when we have another session on Golda Meir, I'm going to say exactly the opposite. Golda Meir never got rid of her very, very strong American accent. And it's a bit stupid, I know, because you shouldn't judge a person by accent. That's not the essence of a person. But a, a young state trying to develop its identity becomes very uh, insular sometimes in its ideas. And in the early stage of Zionism, it was a very narrow ideology. You were either in or you were out. There was no gray zones. So David Ben-Gurion was very lucky that he was fluent in Hebrew at a very young age. He actually came from quite a religious home. Part of the, the family were Hasidim. But he himself saw himself totally as a secularist. So he picked up the Hebrew side, the secular Hebrew side, but he, he uh, put the religious side on the, on, the, on the side. And by the way, you know, when Israeli leaders want to meet important rabbis, they would put a kippah on, uh, even if it wasn't theirs. It was usually their local guard who had one in his pocket and he quickly gave it. And by the way, we know some of them go to the Western Wall and they forget to take a kippah with them. So there's always someone around who has two kippot, one for the leader and one for himself. So um, there, there's this amazing situation that Ben-Gurion is actually, and it's very interesting personality, 
in some realms very narrow, in some realms very dogmatic, and in other realms a visionary. Very interesting, not a contradiction, but something part of uh, his personality. Now, his mother died when he was 11. I want to make a comment here because I've been studying leaders for a long time. It's a very interesting phenomenon to analyze the behavior of leaders whose parents, one parent or the other, died when they were young. And I'm not a psychologist, but I really do have seen a very interesting trait where, for some reason or other, those leaders seem to have more energy, they're more searching. I think when one loses a parent at a young age, you, you have a loss and therefore they're trying to find other things. And it's hard, I mean, they've done a lot of uh, psychological analysis on all leaders, uh, now to, in, in this area particularly. But it seems to me that that really was a, a, a hold in him. And they say of Ben-Gurion, he only had one friend in his life, uh, Bill Katzenelson. Um, and his, uh, I'll come back to it, his relationship with his wife, Paula, was very complex, very difficult. And, you know, I'm not, not in the realm of psychology, but one can suggest that that was uh, important. He made Aliyah in 1906. Uh, for those of you who are into Zionist history, 1906 is the beginning of the second Aliyah. And it's really the beginning of Zionism. If you try and, you know, when does Zionism start? So, you know, I used to have this in my, with my Israeli students, when does Zionism start? And because Israelis are very creative, they would always, one would always say, with Abraham. <laughs> okay, it's a good answer, you know, so I'd say that's true. Then I'd have to redefine it, and then I'd say, political Zionism. Political Zionism, they would always know that it's actually 1905, 1906, at the time of the first Russian revolution. So when you ask timing, timing in, in Zionism is very much affected by what's going on in Russia. Because most of the people, uh, most of the early Zionists were Eastern Europeans. Uh, Poland, Russia, those kind of areas, Belarus today, and uh, uh, places like that. So he arrives in 1906. And here we find this interesting part about David Ben-Gurion. He's a labor Zionist, okay? And Labour Zionists are supposed to go where in the early period, 909, when you have the beginning of a certain agricultural movement, the kibbutz. So this is this great Labour Zionist. Now he was on Sedgera, which was a collective kind of farm. He was there for four months and that was enough. So that was the end of his kibbutz life. And only very much later did he go to, back to to the kibbutz Deboker, and I was so interested in this, I once went to down to Steboker because he had a good friend on Steboker, and I went to speak to this man, and I said, tell me, I know that David Ben-Gurion couldn't cope with the kibbutz. When he came to Steboker, was he a good kibbutznik? He said he was a terrible kibbutznik. <laughs> so what did they do? David Ben-Gurion, typical, he would wake up early, put on his khaki clothes, I mean, we all remember the image, always poorly fitting, he would go into the cow shed, he would mess around a little bit, sort of throwing the, the hay around, and then his friend would say, David, it's such a hot day, you've done a great job, go back and finish the book you're writing. And David would say, thank you very much, and that was the end of his kibbutz for the day. Very interesting. Now, the other thing is that, you know, uh, kibbutznikim are supposed to be sociable, not David. You know, David Ben-Gurion was not searchable. So you have these kind of ideas, and he spoke about the value of the kibbutz and the value of labor Zionism and the value of egalitarianism and all these sort of things, but his own personality really didn't fit in with it very, very well. The other thing that David Ben-Gurion knew is that you have to form an army. And just to remind us, there were four underground Jewish militias on the left side, there was the Haganah and the Palmach, the Palmach, very kind of an elite group. And on the right-hand side was the Irgun, Irgun Svalumi, and the Etzel. So, um, uh, so, sorry, and the Lehi, I'm sorry, and the Lehi. So you have these two groups. So David Ben-Gurion knew that the army was a very, very important 
concept of the, in the development of the Zionist movement. What do we know about David Ben-Gurion in the army? The, the pre-Jewish militia was called Bargiora. It was just before the Haganah, 1908. And he was actually rejected both from the Bargiora and another group called Hashomer, which were the pre-militias. And the argument was, and this is a comment, he was too absent-minded and dreamy. <coughs> so he never had any army experience. That didn't mean he couldn't become a minister of defense, and he was a good minister of defense. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, when we look sometimes at leaders, we have to understand that there's a great gap between what they say and want and what they themselves can do. Now, that doesn't mean there's a contradiction, but it actually means that this is really the complexity of those kind of people who actually would have liked to be different in who they were, but couldn't, and then they adapt, okay? So David Ben-Gurion had his kibbutz life at an old uh, elderly stage, and uh, he had his military life by being a minister of defense. Not in the field, not really ex in knowing exactly what an army is about. After 1917, after the Balfour Declaration, uh, David Ben-Gurion, uh, it was still under the Ottoman authorities, went to Turkey, started off at, in Salonika, and then uh, studied law at Constantinople, because he wanted to be a Jewish representative in the Ottoman parliament. I won't go into Ottoman history for the moment, but the Ottoman parliament always had a number of positions available for Jews. That means David Ben-Gurion is very, very astute in politics. He might have had some weaknesses in other realms, but he actually understood that the, the essence of life is political life. And because it was uh, um, that he believed that the Ottoman Empire would carry on, uh, um, that he would be in the Ottoman Empire. The, the Balfour Declaration changed all that. Not only did he finish his law degree, and obviously then the Ottoman Empire wasn't interested in him, but they expelled him. And he was spent, sent to the United States, and he spent four months in the United States. He married a young American a woman by the name of Paula, and he came back to what was then Eretz Israel uh, under the British rule, Palestine. Now, what does he do when he begins to have power? He understands the unique importance of institutions. David Ben-Gurion recognized that the dispersed nature of the Jewish people was so problematic that it would be so hard to gel the people to, to, together that you couldn't do it sociologically, excuse me. You couldn't do it in terms of social interaction, but you could do it in terms of institutions. And therefore, he, he and many of his colleagues realized that you have to have well-formed institutions um, which, by the way, Jews have experience because of the synagogue. Synagogue is an institution. And by the way, synagogue politics is often like national politics. And you know what I'm talking about. So he, he, it was very clever that he actually realized that Jews had a, a certain ability to understand the importance of politics, and it, it's no longer a theological concept, it becomes a, a regular political concept, and therefore he's very, very active in building institutions. The first institution that he builds is the Histadrut, the Workers' Federation. And it was, until the 1970s, a mo most remarkable institution. When socialism lost its value in Israel, the Histadrut lost its value. But as a centralizing organization, as an organization that brought diverse people into an organization, the Histadrut was, in fact, very, very uh, important. It was later in history uh, very highly criticized. The other institution that David Ben-Gurion uh, realized would be important was the Jewish Agency. Now, the Jewish Agency, because it's an older organization, has now been criticized, but in the early stages, it did unbelievably useful things. This was the government in the making. 
And here comes maybe one of the most important points that I can make. David Ben-Gurion, under the British authorities, acted as if he was head of the government. Now, we have a good American word to describe it, chutzpah. And this was the ultimate chutzpah, because it has been quite amazing. I've read to my students what David Ben-Gurion was saying, and I would ask them, what year? And they would all say after 1948, because you can't say that if it's not your own country. And then I'd say 1935, and they said, can't, because the British government's here. David Ben-Gurion was very interesting. This is a remarkable trait of a human being who realized very quickly, even before the beginning of the Holocaust, because this starts in 1935, okay, four years uh, uh, before uh, Shoah, that he actually realized that you have to build these institutions. The Jewish agency would be one. He also supported the institution of the militias. He obviously preferred his, which means the Haganah and the Palmach, not so much the opposition, because the tensions between the left and right in Israel then as today have been quite horrendous, angry, political interaction existed then as it does uh, today. But this idea was, and the importance of David Ben-Gurion before 1948 is really this person who, when the state is eventually going to be established, there would have already been a period of 10 or 15 years of what we call the proto-state. And that term's very important. You know, I've, um, I've spent time with uh, Palestinians. Um, Palestinians who are trying to understand Zionism, and I've always found it fascinating. Not only, by the way, have I spent time with Palestinians trying to understand Zionism, but I've spent time with people from Lebanon. Uh, I once met uh, two uh, Christian Lebanese uh, who came and spoke to two, my colleague and myself. We weren't supposed to know where they were from, but it took about a minute to know where they were from. But, so that was a long time. Um, it was very interesting because they, inter they wanted to know how did the Jewish people manage to form a state in totally impossible conditions. Absolutely impossible. No money, no support from the British government, coming from different language groups. How do you do it? And uh, I would always explain to them, and particularly to the Palestinians, if you want to build a state, you have to build institutions. You have to develop it. You have to develop the concept. Don't, don't give me this ideological stuff. And I would tell him they would never listen to me. I mean, unfortunately, but they should have, but they didn't. But you, you, have, to, you have to really build structures. And, and it's only by building structures that you can get things going. Now, I won't go into a whole description of the proto-state, but just let me throw out just a few of them. There's already a, an economy. The shekel becomes an, a concept, even under the British. The kibbutz is obviously a well-developed concept. Hamashbir, the clothing structure, the, the, the fine, uh, business structure of clothing and other things like that, merchandise, is developed in the proto-state period. Bank Lomi and Bank the banks are built when it's still under British control. All these kind of structures are being built at the initiative of David Ben-Gurion, very methodically, very solidly, realizing, because he realized at a certain time the state is going to happen, no one knew exactly when, the timing was, was unclear to everyone, but he actually understood that this was the vital component. In addition to which, at a very early stage, Hebrew was demanded. You have a, a crazy situation where in some of the early kibbutzim, for example, um, and, and I learned this from my own very early experience on the kibbutz, there were cases on kibbutzim where as you came into the entrance of the kibbutz, the gates, it was Hebrew only. And let me just tell you an anecdote which is a true anecdote. I was told by my adopted kibbutz family 
1967, when they explained to me how the kibbutz was built, they told me the following story. They said on their kibbutz, if you used a word that wasn't in Hebrew, you would be taxed the three luxury goods of, the, of living on the kibbutz. What were the luxury goods? Toothpaste, tobacco, and soap. Those were the three luxury goods. And there was a punishment system. On Friday night at the Asafa, at the general gathering, people would say, Moshe said something in Yiddish. You get half your soap or a quarter of your toothpaste. Now, it sounds ludicrous. This is crazy. But you know, if you want to build, and, and the building project is so difficult, a, a little bit of crazy, craziness works. And this is what uh, uh, Ben-Gurion understood. By the way, in some cases, it was very cruel. We have to admit that in a later stage, we start dealing with the early Zionist period with some of the most painful issues of quite a high suicide rate. At the graveyard of Kinneret, some of you may have been there. Fascinating place. You spend hours there. There is a tree on the side which was called the weeping tree. And the weeping tree was where some people went to commit suicide. Because the challenges were difficult, it was not easy, it wasn't a caring community. If you couldn't work in those days, you were unwanted. There wasn't rachmanut, there wasn't care, there wasn't understanding. Because, and I think the only way we can understand it when we look back with historical hindsight, I think is to understand the desperate nature of the early Zionist movement, of which Ben-Gurion was clearly one of the most central people. Now, what was his political approach? In terms of politics, while he was dogmatic in some realms, in terms of politics, he had a very, very interesting political view. And that is, say yes with minimum results, because if you work hard, minimum results become larger. What am I saying? 1937, the British government passed what is called the Peel Plan. Commission, British Commission of Inquiry. By the way, the British are good at three things. Uh, commissions of Inquiry, cricket, and drinking tea. That's the power of the British. So here the British are, send out multiple commissions of inquiry uh, to Israel, uh, to Palestine at the time, and they come out with the Peel Commission in 1937, which was a sliver of land along the, post, the, uh, the, postal, uh, the coastal area. M many of the Zionist leaders said, this isn't a country. David Ben-Gurion was brilliant. He said to the British, let's say yes because that's a good way to start anything. Don't always say no. People think say no because then you're gonna get what you want. David Ben-Gurion had another philosophy. He said say yes. The Jews said yes, the Arabs said no. So there were already some British people who were not great lovers of Jews, by the way. Remember, anti-Semitism in Britain uh, of today is not new. There've been chunks of it in the past. But they were beginning to really say, well, we can maybe work with the Zionists, and if the name Ord Wingate, the great British general, means anything to anyone, Ord Wingate, who was a Christ, what we call a Christian Zionist, like Lord George and, um, and, and um, Balfour and people like that, the Christian Zionists felt actually that they could deal with the Jewish population. And Christian Zionists then, today we have the American evangelicals, different, but it's still sort of an idea that we should realize. Um, it was, they felt they could actually deal with David Ben-Gurion because David Ben-Gurion was prepared to cooperate. Well, the Peel Commission didn't come about. But then the, uh, at the start of the, um, of the, of the first, Second World War, um, you have a, a, a situation um, of the uh, white paper. Now, the, the British 
were totally inconsistent. Some of the commissions of inquiries supported Zionism, and then a year or two later, there would be another commission of inquiry which would totally go against what they'd said before. So it was very, very difficult to deal with the British. But in 1939, as the Second World War was starting, David Ben-Gurion came out with a comment which has been much repeated again and again in Israeli history. Britain, we must remember, were the enemy. The British didn't allow the Jews to come in in large numbers. They controlled it. The whole certificate policy, which was going to be very difficult after the Shoah, because there were certain numbers of people who were allowed in. So the British were the enemy. And they were going to become much more of an enemy even after 1945. But he says the following, and this was one of his important ways of looking at the world. The 1939 white paper was anti-Zionist, but he said, we must support Britain in war as if there is no white paper, and we must resist the white paper as if there is no war. Quite a complex sentence, but very interesting. He says basically at this moment, in the Second World War, the British are so much better than the Nazis. So we will go with them. But we won't forget at any time that these British are also against us. But let's help them. And on that basis, David Ben-Gurion and some of the other Zionist leaders encouraged the youngsters who were called Palestinian Jews to join the British army, as we know Jews did uh, in other armies as well, and by the way, that became extremely important because we know some years later with the War of Independence, many of the, uh, uh, as, as was mentioned, the Palestinian men, uh, Jewish men who were in the British Army, received their sophisticated military background in the Second World War. And some years later when the, the War of Independence came about, and it was a sophisticated war, having been in the British Army and picked up the tools of war, not, not militia battles, not local battles, but something with strategy, something with planning, it was many of those people who had been encouraged by David Ben-Gurion to go and fight for the British, the enemy, actually worked very much in the favor of... Um, of the development of the uh, Jewish agency. In addition to which, uh, Ben-Gurion and others sent parachutists, Chana uh, Senish, who I mentioned the other day. Chana Senish, uh, tragic life, uh, was sent into Eastern Europe, as were other parachutists. Um, I remember at Yad Vashem, we met one of the parachutists who survived, uh, a good friend of Chana Senish, and it really was uh, quite an amazing story because once again, remember, this is under British control. It's not an independent country. So the British are not all that happy about it. British sometimes use those soldiers, like Moshe Dayan, who lost an eye working for the, uh, for the British. Um, and uh, essentially, this was all part of what was going to uh, turn out to be very good. As I mentioned, uh, for those of you who were here yesterday, uh, David Ben-Gurion went to the displaced persons camp. Uh, on five occasions in, in Europe. And here we're reaching the stage of the creation of the State of Israel. Creation of the State of Israel was, you know, I've been studying history for some 50 years now. The creation of the State of Israel was a dream. You talk about my, the title of my, all my lectures is fulfilling the dream. This was fulfilling the dream. If anyone, you know, I think if we were sitting in, in the room in November 1947, and we were looking at the realities of can a state be built or not, I think the majority of us would say, we can't do it. The American government told the Zionist leaders, wait, you can't do it yet. 
The British government were very unfriendly about it and certainly didn't support the idea of the Jewish state. They uh, abstained in the famous uh, vote of November 1947. So uh, uh, the number is very small at that time, 600,000 Jews. Who are the 600,000? Some of them are Haredim, ultra-Orthodox, and they're not going to be involved in the, in the war. They're not going to fight. And many of them were against the idea of a state because the Messiah is going to create this state, not a, not a, a, a secular Jew like uh, David Ben-Gurion. Um, and, and as time goes by, uh, by 1951, a hodgepodge of immigrants have arrived, and the figures are amazing. One out of every four Jewish immigrants, 25% of all Jewish immigrants were Holocaust survivors. Just imagine, you formed a country in the most impossible positions, and who have you got? Who are your clientele? Who are building the country? One out of every four Holocaust survivors. Now, I spoke to some of the early uh, immigrants who arrived in Israel in 1948. And one of them told me a fascinating story. They said, in 1951, if you had been in Israel for three years, you were considered one of the old establishment. <laughs> because in 1951, one out of every two Jews in Israel was a new immigrant. So this person told me a fascinating story. He said, I arrived in 1948. 1951, people come to me and start complaining about the country and said, you're an old-timer. Why haven't you done better? He said, I've only been three years. But that didn't interest the person who was complaining, which is why we carry on complaining until today in Israel. So um, it, it really was. Um, how did we do it? It's just, I want to make a short comment. We built the state because there was a combination of committed people. I don't know if you've heard of the Sonneborn Institute. Fascinating story. Sonneborn Institute was 17 wealthy American Jews who for some reason or other, without knowing this Eastern European Zionist socialist ideology, recognized after the Second World War that this was a crucial moment for the Jewish people. The Sonneborn Institute met David Ben-Gurion, and they asked him, they said, what can we really do to help you? David Ben-Gurion said, we don't expect you to come and fight. These are not people who have military background. But we need your financial help, and we need your help in getting equipment. And there's some very interesting information that we later get about the Sonneborn Institute where the leaders of the Zionist movement would send messages to your country, to the United States, with all the long list of equipment. Now, what's important? This is after the Second World War. America's got its own problems. There are American, Americans who don't particularly like the Jews. You remember the big demonstration, Madison Garden, uh, Henry Ford of that time, uh, some 30,000 people demonstrating at the beginning of the war, neo-Nazis. This isn't, as you people know better than I do, this country was a pretty tough place. But these, these uh, group of, of millionaires really not only paid the money, but they found the equipment. Aeroplanes they found and sent over. Aero, aeroplane parts. By the way, equipment, and it goes down to the most basic, basic equipment, one of the basic requests was there weren't enough bras in Israel. So there was a request for bras. The problem was they made a mistake with the sizes. <laughs> and the story goes, and I can't validify it, but the story was that the sizes were so incorrect that when the boxes were open, they thought they were crash helmets. <laughs> but... That's what the story is. So who knows? Every now and again, uh, uh, there's some things uh, go wrong. There was another problem which was very serious, and that was the deep division within the Zionist group. 
friend of mine, uh, the gentleman here, I mentioned the Altalena case. The Altalena boat was a boat which was bringing supplies for the right-wing militias. David Ben-Gurion, petrified that the, uh, there would be a division in the fighting, or in, in the uh, Zionist forces, stopped the boat at the, on the Tel Aviv beach. Uh, in the Israeli army, we once did a simulation game to try and understand the dynamics uh, of this particular event. Uh, and the uh, left-wing organizations, the Palmach and the Haganah, including the late Yitzhak Rabin, actually got into a, a fight, a, a shooting fight, and people were killed on the beaches of Tel Aviv. There was the famous King David Hotel. I, I won't go into the details. Each of them is a story in itself. There was um, a, a whole lot of other events. Besides all the other problems that the state of Israel had in being formed, it had this deep, deep division between the various factions. Now, on this level, David Ben-Gurion was dictator. I have a view which is only one viewpoint. There are moments in history, as long as it's a short period, where a dictator can be useful. And as soon as it carries on too long, it's a total disaster. At that particular moment, David Ben-Gurion took all the instruments of power in his own hands. He directed the war, a war of a, a year and a quarter. It's all under his control. Not only does he direct the war, but you talk about multitasking, he also at that very moment constructed the equivalent, because we don't have a constitution, of Israel's de Declaration of Independence. I would advise all of you to read, it's easily available on the internet, Israel's Declaration of Independence. In many, many educational frameworks, I've used a whole session, a whole hour at my disposal to deal with the issue of the Declaration of Independence. It's a remarkable document of which the Clause 13, which speaks about this country, we're an open country, freedom of religion, race, uh, uh, sex, all those kind of things, very much influenced both by the American Constitution and the French, um, he, he was doing it also. He did it all in his own hands. In a certain sense, by 1953, David Ben-Gurion has done what you could hardly expect anyone to do. But at that time, he is the king. So much so that for a number of years in Israel, if a woman had 10 children and the 10th child was a boy, they called him David. This was an aura, tremendous aura, which David Ben-Gurion had established. What was the aura based on? Where, where does aura, political aura, come from? It comes from different ways. David Ben-Gurion's aura of the time, firstly, was an extreme level of modesty. For those of you who have been to Sdeboker, you know how he lived. You know when his house in Shterot um, Ben-Gurion in, in, in Tel Aviv was built. He wanted a modest house. And when the security people came to him and said, you know, we have to change the structure and we have to create a bomb shelter for you, he said no. He said, why should I have a bomb shelter if the other people in the area haven't got? And you, they really had to work hard with him. Um, and so this was, he was a remarkably modest man and at a time when there really was no money in the country, remember at that time uh, a, a, a bit of fruit once a week was considered a luxury. The, the, the poverty and during the war and even a year or two after the war is unbelievable. And David Ben-Gurion was very modest and the people realized it. That was very important. The other thing about David Ben-Gurion as, as an early prime minister um, was he really did go out to the people. 
But here we have to redefine it a little bit. And here we have to move away from the myth. David Ben-Gurion understood Ashkenazim. He was a solid Ashkenazi. He, like many of the other people of his generation, Levi Eshkol, Golda Meir, uh, all those kind of people, they would always speak Hebrew with good chunks of Yiddish in the middle, which is not a very good way of including people who don't understand Yiddish. And David Ben-Gurion, as, as we find later, and we, you can meet many Israelis who would describe Ben-Gurion in many different ways from what I'm talking about. It's the other thesis, which is an important thesis. He, he didn't ever really understand the people who came from North African countries. And it's a, it's a different kind of person. Uh, if you grow under uh, Christian rule, you're one kind of person. If you grow under Muslim rule, you're another kind of person. Cultural differences, religious differences. People from Middle East and North African countries tend to be more religious than many of the Ashkenazim who were in Israel at the time. And this is where the troubles really begin to start. A, a tremendous respect that he had from people who he understood and liked. Uh, and a problem because he really didn't go the extra step to try and fully understand uh, what, was, um, uh, what was going on on the, the other side. How did he understand the issue? To quote, the Jewish people have to be taken out of exile and exile has to be taken out of the Jewish people. What he wanted was to create what has been an issue of major discussion in Israel, a normal people. And some people don't want to be a normal people. They want to be unique. And but David Ben-Gurion, when we look at it, he is Western. He's been influenced by his four months in the United States. He's going for something very, very much uh, on the Western level. In 1951, he made the following speech. There was nothing that the Jewish people yearned for more over hundreds of years than a Jewish state. There was nothing the Jewish people was less qualified for than a Jewish state. And that says it. That is really Ben-Gurion putting everything uh, into essence. The clock is ticking, so let me very quickly try and give an overview of what else he did. Um, he, he was involved in moving Israel into the Western mode. He insisted that the country would be a labor Zionist socialist country. He was very intolerant to capitalism. He was very intolerant to political leaders who disagreed with him. On the right-hand side, I'm talking about Israel, on, on the right-hand side, Menachem Begin, so much so that Menachem Begin, who we'll be talking about in one of the sessions, in the Knesset, he never used the term Mr. Begin. He used the following term, the man who is sitting next to Mr. Bader. <laughs> you want to insult someone? I mean, you imagine in the House of Commons, when I listen to them, I would like to thank the honorable member from Bromley. I mean, Israelis don't know what that language is all about. And this was the insult of all insults. For years and years and years, he refused to speak about Menachem Begin, the leader of the opposition, and use his name. So this is unbelievable. On the leftist side, there were the communists. There were Jewish communists, or people who had had connections with Jewish communism, and for, for him, they were just as much traitors as the people on the right. What happens with David Ben-Gurion is, in some senses, a tragedy. On the global level, he has tremendous aura. He has contact with all the leaders. For those of you who remember, if you've been to Stabokher, you see him with all the leaders in the world. You see him communicating with Mahatma Gandhi, there's a lovely picture of David Ben-Gurion with Charles de Gaulle. 
One is tall and the other is short. Uh, amazing, amazing person on the international level. I think, you know, Israel was such a small and irrelevant country in 1948 through the 50s. But countries in the world looked at Israel and said this little country was really trying to do something very important. And part of that, not all of that, part of that was certainly their contact with David Mingurian, who uh, always impressed um, them a tremendous amount. To start concluding, well, I would have loved to carry on for another three hours, but Ari, the boss doesn't allow me. The what went wrong? David Ben-Gurion was in power for 14 years. No leader should be in power for so long. And the tragedy of David Ben-Gurion, we look with historical background, and you read, when you can read any of the biographies, I've read eight of the biographies. If we take Anita Shapira, for example, when Anita Shapira is writing about the last stages of Ben-Gurion's life, you kind of almost want to stop the book and say, Ben-Gurion, get out of politics now, you've done it. There was a famous Lavon affair, complex, dirty, Ben-Gurion became vindictive. In, you can't believe it. He couldn't stand his own peers. The, the bunch of them, Eshkol, Chaim Weizmann, he had fights with Goldie, he had fights with, he just couldn't stand any of them. And the only people he liked were the youngsters. He loved Moshe Dayan and Shimon Peres and Teddy Kolik and Gad Yokobi, all the young guys. That, that was, they were okay. But he, he moved into this very, very sad, vindictive moment, isolating himself and... Um, Tragic. So this is the moment that if you're reading Anita Shapiro, don't read the last three chapters. <laughs> then you can go to have a good night's sleep. I think Ben-Gurion's an unbelievable personality. I've read the stuff. I can't get over what he did in a day. I know he had faults. And we know that King David had faults. And David Ben-Gurion had faults. But to end with just a little note, David Ben-Gurion, as I mentioned, came to give a lecture at the Hebrew University. And in the large auditorium of Givat, the Givat Ram campus, this was before Mount Scopus was built, um, the hall was almost full, and I was sitting at the back, and there happened to be one seat, and it was empty, and, and a young South African uh, woman came, who I'd met once or twice before, sat next to me. And during the speech, uh, David Ben-Gurion started telling a joke about a Jew in Meir Sharim. And this particular young lady from South Africa and myself, we both laughed. And, you know, laughing is a good relationship. It was the end of the first semester. She was an undergraduate. I was a graduate. And at the end of the lecture, I said, you know, we both seem to be similar. I'm Southern African from Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. So I said, let's go on a teal. Let's go up to the northern part of the country. And young people, we decided we'd meet on the Sunday and go. And uh, three days later, on this teal, uh, we decided that we were going to get married. <laughs> and why were we going to get married? Because we started laughing because of David Ben-Gurion's joke. <laughs> and we did get married. Not three days later. We had to wait for a grandmother to come from South Africa. So we waited a little bit of time. We have to go through the rabbinate, which was, tell you another story about that another time. Uh, but uh, before we got married, I said to my wife, Brenda, married, four children, 11 grandchildren, I said to my wife, Brenda, we have to go and invite David Ben-Gurion. <laughs> so we went down by bus, those old buses. Oh, it was such a schlep down to Stabokir, no air conditioning. And I had the invitation and I'd practiced my Hebrew speech that I was going to tell David Ben-Gurion, a retired man, a lonely man. I knew that he was lonely. And I was going to give him the invitation. I wasn't quite sure if he'd agree or not, you know. And I got literally this far away, a few yards away. And I was about to give him 
the invitation and his God, there were three gods there, young gods, lovely people, came up and said, what are you doing? And I told them the story that I want to give David Ben-Gurion an invitation to my wedding because he was responsible for me getting married. And then the, the God said something that I heard, many people had heard it before. He said, uh, Zaken, the old man, everyone called him the old man. The old man is not receiving guests today, but he did promise that he'd give the invitation to David Ben-Gurion. I must tell you sadly that he wasn't there at the wedding. <laughs> but that's why David Ben-Gurion is not only important for me as the historian, but important for me because he was responsible for me marrying my wife. Thank you very much. <laughs> Please, questions. Yeah. Sir, how many minutes have we got now? Uh, five, ten minutes. Five, ten minutes. Good. You mentioned at the end David Ben-Gurion became... Um, sad and vindictive and isolated and didn't much appreciate his peers, but appreciated the youngsters. Um, what was it about his peers that got him so perturbed? So what was about the peers? You know, when you've been in power too long, you don't seem to want to have a number two. And I think that's what it was. Um, the peers were but real believers in democracy. And David Ben-Gurion, I think, having had power, you know, it wasn't only power from 1948. He had power from 1935. So it's a very, very long period where he held the real control of what was going on. Now the youngsters, by Diane and Shimon Peres and people like that, were, were, were respected him. They didn't argue with him. You know, I met Shimon Peres once, we spoke about it, and he said in those days, uh, uh, the, us youngsters just listened to him. You write, you read Shimon Peres' books, and you see how he absolutely adored Ben-Gurion. So I think that's what really went wrong. And I go back to this idea, which is re relevant in Israel today. Don't have a leader who's in power for too long, because it goes wrong. And it's not a political statement I'm making, but a very strong political statement. So that's, that's what I'm saying. Uh, uh, yes, please, sir. If you go back to the beginning of the American uh, Republic, uh, Washington was very careful because in everything he did, he realized that he was setting a precedent that would end up being followed by all succeeding presidents how did Ben-Gurion deal with that? Wonderful question, thank you. David Ben-Gurion was so convinced that he was creating history that he wrote history by the hour. So when I mentioned his diary, which then became his book, A Personal History, he's actually writing it for later generations. So he had a very, very strong belief. By the way, he, he wouldn't have, could never have imagined Israel of what it is today. He thought it was going to carry on as a socialist, egalitarian, kibbutz-based society. But uh, like Washington, thank you for the comment, like Washington, he had a very, tr he was totally, totally committed to uh, building the future Israel through his writing. And just let me make one comment. Um, uh, Yitzhak Navon, who later became a president of Israel, a, a wonderful human being, uh, he was Ben-Gurion's personal assistant. And Yitzhak told me, uh, because I, I've spoken to many of these people, he said to me, uh, his job in the morning was to go around the house where Ben-Gurion had shaved, for example, because Ben-Gurion would write little notes. And Yitzhak Navon's job was to pick up all the notes and put the date down. A former student of mine worked in the archives of Stabokher, and it took them, three of them, three of the students, three years to put the documents into order. So you can imagine. He wrote everything all the time, and I'm just taking the extreme case. Even when he was shaving, he would make some comment. A lot of his comments, by the way, were very philosophical. So it wasn't only what you do in the state, but kind of mind-based things. So... He's kind of a, the Israeli uh, uh, version of, uh, of, of that. I'll just go over to the side. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. Okay. Sorry. Uh, he became prime minister a number of times. 
He let go of the power, he was thrown out of the party, came back. What exactly was that about? He, he, it was once. He, he broke in the middle in 1953. Uh, Moshe Charette took over as prime minister for a number of months. He, he every now and again got angry. Let me tell you his technique of democracy. There were meetings, which we know about, that some of the people, going back to your question, some of the people who were the older crowd disagreed with him. And then you'd get very upset. And then you'd say, if you don't agree with me, then I'll resign. And they would always say, no, no, we didn't disagree with you. We just thought you might think of another idea. There was one occasion when he got fed up because he didn't believe them, and that's where he went down to stay Bokeh for the few months. Charette was supposed to be the prime minister. All the ministers went down to stay Bokeh all the time to speak to Ben-Gurion. Charette actually realized he wasn't the real prime minister. Ben-Gurion believed that he was still the real prime minister and came back to power. So that was the, actually the very important event that you're talking about. My time is up. I'm happy to stay here. Uh, as long as you want, and good night, and hopefully we'll see you in the coming sessions. Thank you very much.